Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. Brand new broadcast week. So glad to have you joining me. And uh, we're going to be talking about Christmas and the signs of Christmas. And so we're going to look at the star this week. And then next week, we'll look at the gifts. And then we'll follow it up with the incarnation and the virgin birth. But uh, here's a really bad Christmas joke for you. Uh, What did one Christmas tree say to the other? What did one Christmas tree say to the other? I'm feeling pine, pine, pine. Ah, That's real bad. Okay, Uh, let's get on to more important things, okay? When I think about Christmas, I think about all the wonderful ways that God has revealed himself to us. You know, we express ourselves differently. And God has created us in such a way that uh, we can create different ways of expressing ourselves. So I think about how most pastors express themselves. Pastors tend to be verbal learners, and so they tend to express themselves verbally. And they give a lot of details. They're very good. Uh, Some would say that pastors are glorified wordsmiths. They have an extensive vocabulary, so they can use that, and they uh, communicate their message through the verbal word. Uh, Well, some people reflect themselves, and, and some people express themselves through their personality, through the clothes that they wear. For example, if somebody's wearing sackcloth and ashes in the Bible, you knew they were going to a time of mourning, a lost loved one. Or if somebody's wearing black today, we know that that is the uh, clothes they would wear going to a funeral. So that's an expression of how we are feeling based upon the clothes that we're wearing. Well, some people, they express themselves through music, singing, playing music, and uh, that is an amazing form of expression. Musicians have this uh, unique ability uh, to communicate with instruments. Some people um, communicate through yelling, right, and venting. Some people do it by writing, writing stories, poems, uh, essays. That's how they communicate their thoughts. That's how they get their point across. Uh, Some people even do it uh, through paintings, like artists, and uh, they draw or create something that represents a vision of what they want to express, or it expresses their mood. Some people even express themselves through playing sports or, or other physical activities, and we would say that's a great form of communication. Uh, some people do it by journaling. Some people do it by dance. Some people would do it by joining groups and, and, uh, and having a, a connection with others based upon a similar group that they're part of. Some people even do it through the ability to decorate. Uh, I think about our church is decorated for Christmas and our whole facility Our whole campus is decorated for Christmas. Well, somebody had a creative flair about them. You know, I can tell you, I didn't do the decorating because if I had done the decorating, the two Christmas trees that are sitting on the stage would look like Charlie Brown showed up. But uh, somebody else who is very creative, they expressed themselves through how they portray decorations. And it's great how God allows us and gifts us in different areas. And so today I want to talk about the star of Bethlehem. We're going to be looking at a couple of texts today and tomorrow. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then we're going to look at Numbers 24, verses 15 to 17. Those are going to be our two major texts. Uh, But before I read the text, uh, this is one of those times where I wish I could show you a picture. On radio, on a, on a podcast, you really can't show a picture because you're just getting the audio. But I have on my computer screen right now a painting, and it's a uh, painting that's kind of a um, an abstract painting. It's uh, actually a landscape painting that was painted in 1889. 
It's an expressive night sky over the hillside village. And it was done by one of Dutch's finest artists. And it's one of his most celebrated works. Well, the painting that I'm referring to is called The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. It's an oil-on canvas painting. And it's a, it's a painting that is dominated by the night sky. And you can see the night sky that the uh, there's a, a rolling of the sky, the blue sky has got squirrels so that you can see that it's swirling around. But then you see glowing yellow, and you see a crescent moon, and then you see the stars, and they are radiating, these stars. And you can tell that the stars are not moving. They are stationed in their place, but the air is blowing all around them. And then in this picture, you also see a couple of uh, cypress trees, and uh, often described as flame-like towers that are coming up on the left side of this painting, and then there's dark branches that are curling and swirling uh, to the movement of the sky, and they are partly obscured by the landscape. And then there's uh, straight controlled lines that make up the small cottages, and Van Gogh had included a little village here, and uh, and there's also a, a slender steeple of a church that rises up as the beacon against the rolling hills and the and the turbulent sky. And then you see the glowing squares of the houses that suggest welcoming lights and peaceful homes. And so as you look at this picture, the creator, Van Gogh, is trying to bring calm in the midst of a storm. I mean, he's painting a very turbulent picture, but yet he is going through a very difficult time in his life personally. Now, Van Gogh painted The Starry Night during his 12-month stay at an asylum. And this asylum was in France, and for several months after he suffered a breakdown, he uh, actually got so desperate during this time of a breakdown that he took a razor and he actually cut off part of his ear. And while he's at this asylum, he is painting during the few times that he has these outbursts of productivity. And he's trying to share his mood. His mood was really a mood of despair. And he's sharing how he feels. And as an artist, uh, he preferred to work from observation, but he was limited and he had to go on his memory because he couldn't paint in his room. He had to paint out where there's a lot of people that could keep an eye on him because he was under a, a suicide watch. And so he creates a picture with the subjects that he remembers surrounded him, and he's painting this view outside of a studio window, and it's surrounded by a countryside that he wish he could visit, but he can't. Now, as we look at Van Gogh's subjects uh, in this picture, he's experiencing here various weather conditions, uh, changing of light, and he's painting other things in the background. You can see wheat fields that aren't in the background. And then you can also see over to the right, there's dark storm clouds. Well, Van Gogh was uh, particularly preoccupied by the, the challenges of painting a night landscape. And he wrote about it to his brother, Theo, who was also a painter. And he wrote about it to his sister. And he's sharing the contents of this uh, purpose behind this painting. And uh, as he's at this asylum, He's observing the night sky, and he's in a barred bedroom window, and he writes this letter describing 
the magnificent view of the morning star very early one morning. It was in the summer of 1889. Now, because he wasn't allowed to paint in that room, he painted the scene from his memory. And as he puts this scene together, he applies paint directly from the tube onto the canvas. And he creates this uh, thick kind of uh, of hewn, and, uh, and he does an amazing job using his imagination. Well, Van Gogh eventually regarded the finished Starry Night really as a failure. And he indicated that the the painting favored style over substance. Well, the painting was one of Van Gogh's late works, as within a year of painting this, this oil painting, he took his own life. His artist career was very brief. I mean, he only painted for 10 years, but it was very productive. In these 10 years, He left more than 800 paintings and drawings to his brother. And then the Museum of Modern Art in New York City purchased the Starry Starry Night from a private collector in 1941. It was not well known, but it has since become one of Van Gogh's most famous paintings, if not one of the most recognized work in the art history canon. As I think about this painting and as I think about why in the world did he paint this painting? I never had an appreciation really for art until I took a course in college called Art and a Music Appreciation. And in this particular class, we would take paintings like Van Gogh, and we would try to figure out the communication or the message that he was trying to communicate through his paintings. And as we look at this painting, we discover that uh, this painting really for the longest time wasn't fully understood until historians uh, dug deeper into the letters that Van Gogh wrote and uh, dug deeper into the picture, the painting itself. Well, there was another music artist who put together a song that kind of explains uh, the meaning of this Starry Starry Night. Now, if you're older like I am, you will remember this song. It's a song that was written by Don McLean. It was actually a hit song, Uh, And it was entitled Starry, Starry Night. And it's a comparison of Van Gogh's actual life where Don McLean actually puts uh, what he feels like he was feeling to words. And let me give you some of the words. And the reason I'm giving all this is because God will often communicate to us. Yes, he communicates through his word, but he also gives us other indicators that he's speaking. The Star of Bethlehem is a wonderful example of God communicating to the wise men and communicating to us that Jesus is born. You think about the stars in the sky. They are stationary. That's how sailors are able to uh, navigate through the ocean. They line up according to the stars because the earth is spinning and the the sky and the wind is blowing, uh, but the stars are stationary. And so something amazing happened at the birth of Christ we see a new star is formed. And before I get too much into that new star that is formed, the star of Bethlehem, let me go back to the the song written by Don McLean. Starry, starry night, paint your palette blue and gray. Look out on a summer's day. Now, this is giving Van Gogh's vantage point looking out from the asylum. And as he's looking out, he paints mainly from memory what he sees in the courtyard garden. But then he's able to put it all together. 
Here's the next stanza. With eyes that know the darkness in my soul, shadows of the hills, sketch the trees and the daffodils, catch the breeze in the winter chills, in colors of the snowy linen land. Now I understand what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They did not know how. Perhaps they'll listen now. Starry, starry night, flaming flowers that brightly blaze, swirling clouds in violet haze. And so here we see a picture of the flaming flowers. It's a reflection in in Vincent's eyes of China blue. Colors changing hue, morning field of amber grain, weathered faces lined in pain, are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand. And so when we see this, we see that a lot of people were missing the meaning behind the picture, but some people got it, for they could not love you. This is Van Gogh's tragic death. Even though he loved paintings, his painting could not love him back. But still your love was true. And when no hope was left in sight, on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. Van Gogh attempted suicide by shooting himself first in the chest which ultimately led to his death two days later. The writer continues, But I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you. Starry, starry night. Portraits hung in empty halls, frameless head of nameless walls, with eyes that watch the world and can't forget. You see, Van Gogh's artist legacy is contained within his paintings, within his drawings, and within his writings. They are words that we will never forget, especially in the style that created them. They are Van Gogh's eyes that watch the world. This is all metaphorically speaking, though. Like the strangers that you've met, says the writer, the ragged men in ragged clothes, the silver thorn of bloody rose, lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow. Now I think I know what you tried to say to me, how you suffered for your sanity, how you tried to set them free. They would not listen. They're still not listening. Perhaps they never will. Uh, We finally come to the conclusion of realizing Van Gogh's struggle with depression. We discover from this that, that God may have some of the same feelings as he gives the star of Bethlehem to remind us of the coming of the Savior, to instruct the wise men. By the way, wise men are still seeking him. Before we look at, in depth, the Matthew account of the star of Bethlehem, I want to take an Old Testament account that actually predicts the star being shining above the place where Jesus lay when he was born. We've got to go back to the book of Numbers, way back in the Old Testament. And to kind of give you a little background as to where we're going, Numbers chapter 23 and chapter 24, Balaam gives several messages to King Balak. Now, Balaam was um, a guy in the Bible who was a non-Israelite prophet. We could call him a pagan seer. He uh, was a pagan seer, kind of like a soothsayer, during the time of Moses. 
Now, he was hired by an evil king, an enemy of the nation of Israel, a king by the name of Balak. So we have Balaam and King Balak. And King Balak is paying Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites, as they are entering into Moab, there's going to be a battle that's going to take place. They're going to fight against King Balak. And so the king says to Balaam, I want you to put a curse on Moses and the people of Israel so that when they come into Moab, we will be able to soundly defeat them. Now, Balaam was a highly regarded seer by the Moabites and by the Midianites as a soothsayer and as a prophet. I mean, he had the ability to bless and curse, and he had some success. You know, I want you to understand that um, even those who don't know Christ, sometimes they have success in bringing about curse and bringing about evil. God gives limited uh, success. Uh, do you remember Moses when, when he put his staff down on the ground and it turned into a serpent? Well, the enemies of Moses did the same thing. The Egyptian soothsayers did the same thing. But then Moses picked up his by the tail and it went back into a staff, and they couldn't do that. When we look at Balaam, Balaam was a, what I would call a snake in the grass. I mean, he was wanting money, and that's all he really was after was money. And so he takes the money from King Balak, and he attempts to bring a curse onto the people of Israel. Now, the first time he did, Balaam failed to curse Israel. He just couldn't do it, right? And then he tries again, and, uh, and Balaam ends up blessing Israel, right? Not cursing them. And then he has a third attempt, and Balaam cursed Balak and blesses the children of Israel. Did just the opposite as to what he was paid to do. Well, finally, King Balak had enough. He said, now listen, I have paid you to curse the people of Israel. You keep blessing them. You even have cursed me and not them. Get your act together. And in the fourth oracle is found in Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 to 17. And so Balaam said, okay, I will go and curse them. And you are probably familiar with this part of the story, right? In Numbers chapter 24, where Balaam is proceeding into an area, uh, where it's kind of a narrow area, and Balaam's donkey stops, right? And pins Balaam against a wall, and then Balaam's donkey begins to speak, right? I mean, it's a fascinating story, right? Whoever said that the Bible is boring has never read some of these really cool Old Testament passages that talk about what God does, right? And so here the Balaam's donkey begins speaking. And I guess if we could say, if God can use Balaam's donkey to fulfill his purpose, I guess he could use just about anybody. Well, Balaam, as he is bringing out this fourth message, says this, Numbers 24, 15 to 17, he spoke this message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the word of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see them, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And here is the prediction of the star of Bethlehem. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the people of Sheth. 
And here we discover Balaam still can't curse God's people. God won't let him do it. He has four other oracles after this that that we'll save for another day. But here, this prophecy of Balaam actually predicts the star of Bethlehem, that star coming out of Jacob, that star representing the fact that Jesus was going to come from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, a scepter will rise out of Israel, and he's going to crush the Moabites, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. So it's kind of a twofold prophecy here. One, God was going to bring Israel victory over the Moabites, but eventually there'd be no more Moabites at all. They were going to be destroyed forever. As we think about this amazing story, the Star of Bethlehem, that is one of the major signs of the coming of the Messiah. It represents the power and the authority of Jesus. So let me just give you a couple of points about the Star of Bethlehem. Number one, we'll look at its appearance. Now, we're going to Matthew chapter 2 now, uh, verses 1 through 10. I won't have time to finish it up in this broadcast, but join me tomorrow for the the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. But in verses 1 and 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it was during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, this is amazing. When the Magi get to Jerusalem, they begin to ask people, right? They saw this star that appeared in the east, and because they were astrologers, that's what they did for a living. They studied the stars. And one night, they said, you know what? This new star is appearing in the east. And this is a moving star. At the end of the broadcast tomorrow, I'm going to give the different explanations that people have for what the Star of Bethlehem is. But we know that it appeared in the east where the Magi were, and it was moving, so they followed it, and it led them to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, they begin to ask the people, where is this one who has born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, somehow, they connected this star to the birth of Jesus. And they came seeking Christ to worship him. Now, if you're like me, you're kind of wondering, well, how in the world could they have possibly made such a connection? And for that, we must consider the scriptures, right? As you wonder how the Magi would know the Jewish scriptures. Well, if you think back to your Old Testament history, uh, you will recall when the people of Israel, whenever they were not faithful, to God or to his covenant. What did God do to his people? He scattered them. And he would scatter them among the nations. He would send them into exile. Well, one of those places was Babylon, later conquered by the Persians. Now, the prophet Daniel lived during that time. As a matter of fact, he actually served as an advisor for both of these kingdoms, for the Persians and the Babylonians. And some of the other advisors this time would have also been called Magi. But whether or not it was Daniel who passed on these teachings along, we're not sure because of the exile, but the Jewish scriptures were known in these other lands as well. So the Magi had access to the prophecies of scripture. They probably had access to the writings of the book of Numbers. They probably studied this as they were studying the stars. You know, being astrologers, 
they would have been particularly drawn to those passages of scriptures that spoke about the stars. So the first point that we've covered, and join me tomorrow for the next four points that are remaining. The first point is that this star had its appearance. It was there over Jerusalem, leading them to to not only Jerusalem, but into Bethlehem. So join me tomorrow for part two, okay? Now, in the closing minute that I have, I want to give you an opportunity to be part of Hickory Ridge Community Church through joining us for worship. We are so excited to have two Christmas Eve services this year, one at 9 o'clock, one at 3 o'clock, and then on New Year's Eve, we're going to have one service at 9 a.m. I would love to have you come and worship with us. I'm going to be talking about the virgin birth on Christmas Eve, and I'm going to share with you why the virgin birth is so essential to the Christmas story. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, the Christmas story is a hoax. But Jesus was born of a virgin. We're going to be looking at the four signs of the coming of Christ. And so join me on Christmas Eve at Hickory Ridge Community Church, 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. Would love to worship with you that night. Well, if I can pray for you, shoot me a text, okay? 252-267-2365. God bless you. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.